you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And if you are able, you can rise with me as, and stand as we read uh, these verses together. And we do have a few verses to read. Uh, I'm going to read not all of the chapter, but most of it. Uh, and then we will uh, study these together. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw into the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Skip down to verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke its pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Skip down to verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. 
and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So that's pretty clear. Let's just pray, and we'll head home. <laughs> Thank you for coming this morning. Now let's pray together. God, I, Lord, I, I admit that I'm not a, I'm not a scholar. Lord, I know that there are words in our, in our Bibles that are difficult to understand, difficult to interpret. But Lord, I know that you're the God who gives us grace. You're the God who gives us your spirit of wisdom and understanding. And Father, I pray that today we would open our hearts, Lord, and that we would see the message, that we would see the truth. And Lord, ultimately, that we would honor you as God, that we would worship you as Lord, knowing that no matter what comes our way, you are still in control. You are still on the throne. And Lord, we, as we sang, let us come and adore you today. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> and if you haven't noticed, uh, we've now reached a point in Daniel where it's different. Uh, <laughs> that's because Daniel 7 is where all the problems start. Uh, all the previous six chapters have been this narrative of events, uh, the Israelites in exile, and, and we saw God working and intervening in, in different events after each chapter and each chapter, uh, these wonderful stories that we knew when we were kids, you know, the fiery furnace and the lion's den, uh, but now, and for the rest of this book, the emphasis kind of switches, and so today we're looking in this chapter and I, I really want to just uh, talk about the main purpose of these words and how to live as our, as our series is, live with hope in a world that's hostile towards, towards God. So we've been tracking with Daniel through the six chapters, and now it sounds like Daniel is just like gone off the rails. Like we've, we've read most of this chapter, and we don't know what's, what in the world is going on. Well, probably the main reason for that is because the genre of literature switches. He's gone from writing about a narrative, about events, to a different type of writing. And you understand that because there's different types of literature even all around us. For example, if I started reading something that said, once upon a time there was a princess who lived in a faraway castle, you would immediately in your mind understand that I'm reading probably something like a fairy tale. If I were to say, uh, on February 12th, 1809, a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln was born. You would say, okay, he's looking, he's reading from something historical, something that is talking about history. If I stood up here and said, this week, there is a slight chance that we might see some white stuff falling from the sky. And all God's people said, no. <laughs> You would suggest that I was crazy. No, you wouldn't. Or that I was giving some sort of weather forecast. If I said, space, the final frontier, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, you would respond with, you're a nerd. Because I am. But no, it's science fiction. 
fantasy. See, our minds go to a particular genre based on what we hear or based on what we read. And here in Daniel, we, become, we come across this particular genre of literature that some of us are not familiar with. It's actually called apocalyptic literature. You hear, find it in Daniel, you find it in Revelation, Ezekiel, and some other places. And it's apocalypse, apocalyptic in nature. The word apocalypse basically if you look that up, it says a telling of the end of the world. We've heard the word before in perhaps movies or in, in, in books that we've read uh, that's talking about, hey, how the world ends or the destruction of the world. So when you get to apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you need to know that it's telling the readers about the end of the world, how it's all going to end and what it's going to look like. Now, I say all that for context because I was born in a Christian family, so I, I, I literally grew up in church, okay, the, my entire life. And I, can, I can't even begin to count the number of sermons that I had listened to growing up that came from this type of literature, sermons about the end times, that was what was going to happen. And, and I have to tell you, they're terrifying, like, they're probably some of the scariest sermons that I heard as a boy. And here's what I want you to understand about apocalyptic literature. Uh, this literature is not designed primarily to scare you to death. It's designed, if you're a Christian, to give you hope and to encourage you. One of the commentators I was reading, Dale Davis, he said this about this type of literature. He goes, it is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. He says, and it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. It's designed to enlighten and encourage people and I'll say that growing up listening to sermons from Daniel 7 or from Revelation, that I never walked away feeling encouraged, hopeful, or enlightened. I usually walked away feeling scared. Like, this stuff is scary. I don't want to be a part of this. The world is coming to an end. I better get saved. And I probably got saved 80 times when I was a kid. Because I was scared to death that I, I don't want to face the, the moon turning to blood and, and the oceans dying. And wait, oh my goodness, these words are supposed to give me hope? Not scare me to death. If I could say it this way, apocalyptic literature is really what it is. It's telling of how the world truly is. And what God is going to do to bring it to an end. So as we look at this chapter together, that's what I want us to see. So this chapter really splits into two parts. Verses 1 through 14, we have the dream, if you will. And then verses 15 through 28, we have the interpretation. So he tells us about the dream, and then he tells us what it means. So this morning, we're going to look at those two uh, together. And then within them, we're going to kind of divide it up a little bit further into two parts each. Okay, so the first one, the dream, is found in verses 1 through 14. And what I want to show you about the first section Part one is the reality of monsters. The reality of monsters. Have you ever had someone tell you a dream before? I, I, I have. It. I'm the kind of person that I really have very 
vivid dreams. I'm talking like, like in the, I, I don't always remember them, but when I do, I mean, there are some dreams that I've remembered for years. And, and I can give you every little detail about it because they're so real to me. And, but it's interesting, something that's so real to me is not at all real to anyone else. For example, some of these vivid dreams I've had uh, in the dream, some sort of conversation with someone or a bad situation, and, and I wake up, and to me, it's as if it really happened. So I talk to Cheyenne about it, and she just stares at me, and she's like, it was a dream. I'm like, no, no, it was, I, I know that this person is out to get me, or, and she's like, it was a dream. No, 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 you don't understand, you know, and she's like, it's not real. <laughs> I'm just standing there. I mean, for me, it's really real. For her, it's not. So is that what we kind of make here of Daniel's dream? Whoa, Daniel, that is, yeah, lay off the pizza before bed, man, because that is not good. You got some weird dreams going on here. Uh, let me just say this. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these days, he's spoken to us by his son. We study those together. Throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again, God using dreams to actually speak to people. And of course, it's here in the Bible. It's Daniel chapter 7. It's not like we just found this manuscript of Daniel writing about a dream. This is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is inspired word of God, which means that this dream has a purpose. This dream is important. So let's talk a little bit about the dream. Verse 1 says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. So we kind of get the timing here based on this first verse. It's the first year of Belshazzar. You're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just finished chapter 6, and chapter 6 was talking about Darius. And now you're saying Belshazzar? Okay, Daniel's 1 through 6. The first six chapters are chronological. They, they walk through, you have Nebuchadnezzar, you have the captivity of the people in chapter 1. You have Nebuchadnezzar through four chapters. And then in chapter 5, we have Belshazzar mentioned. And then in chapter 6, we have Darius mentioned. At the end of 6, we actually have Cyrus mentioned. So beginning in chapter 7, and actually throughout the rest of the book, it's not going to be chronological anymore, but it's kind of like skipping around in different times of the previous events. Okay, So Daniel has this dream sometime at the beginning of the reign of Belshazzar. Okay, as you read this chapter, there might be some signals going off. This is a dream. Okay, Belshazzar's taken over. Chapter five is, you know, it's not even chapter five yet. It's after four. And, and so now Daniel's got this new ruler and he has this dream. And we read the dream. It's all about these four beasts. And it, it's different, but it might sound familiar to another dream that was mentioned a little earlier. And we won't take the time because we already went through that. But if you go back to Daniel 2, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar also has a dream. And he had a dream that literally troubled him. Similar to the sense of Daniel being troubled. Anyway, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember the story of Daniel 2, he couldn't remember the dream. So he calls in his wise men, his magicians, and he's like, hey, guys, tell me about my dream. Tell me what it means. Okay, tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it No, 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 you tell me the dream. And, of course, they couldn't because who can tell about someone else's dream? So he threatens to kill them, and, of course, Daniel comes in, right? He steps up, and he goes, hey, 
Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream, here's the interpretation. And the, and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was this statue, okay? This, this statue that had four parts, the head of gold, the chest of silver, you know, the, the, the feet, the legs that were iron, and then down at the bottom there were uh, the lower legs and the feet that were part iron and part clay. And then Daniel said, remember, king, these are kingdoms, you're the head of gold, and then there's this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom. And then there was this stone that no human had made that came in and just flew in and hits the bottom of the statue, and it obliterates the statue and all the kingdoms. So now we get to Daniel 7, and there's this dream that's also about four kingdoms, four beasts. So what's going on here? If I could say it this way, there's always two histories that are being written. There's the history that you're going to find in your history books. This happened in this event, there's this and this and this. And then there's a history that God is writing. And so sometimes what God will do in scriptures is he's going to take you underneath and he's going to say, I want to show you what's really going on in history. I want to show you what's really going on in the world around you. And that's what I love about scripture because scripture shows us reality. It doesn't paint us this sort of rosy colored idea of Christianity. It shows us truth. Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue and it was glorious and beautiful and it's the kingdoms and look at how great it is. Daniel sees four kingdoms as monsters. They're horrible. They're terrifying. And I see it's the kingdom of God seeing the world versus the kingdom of man seeing the world. In our world today, people are going to see one thing, but under the surface, there's something else going on. That kind of evil, it looks good to the people of the world. This is beautiful. This is great. But the reality underneath is it's evil. It's horrifying. You know, movies do that. Movies do it. I'm not a fan of horror movies. But here's a clown. Clowns are supposed to be great. And it eats children. What in the world? Something that's smiley should not be that horrible. See, Daniel sees a total different reality than what Nebuchadnezzar saw. And what he sees is like something from science fiction. Did you, you, were you, when I was reading, do you hear these beasts? I mean, it's like he was watching Stranger Things or something. I don't know. But let's take a look at the dream. Look at these beasts. These beasts, uh, first of all, are coming up out of the sea. Look at verse 2. I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. The sea represents chaos. You see it. It's stirred up. It's, it's waves. And it's, it's, it's this mindset. And by the way, this is a true mindset of the ancient Near East. That, that they see the sea as a place of rebellion against God. There's this, this evil mystery, if you will. There's things under that we don't know. It's almost as seen as like the underworld. because they, And you could see paintings and things from the past of, of them describing monsters under the waters. Because it was unknown. We can't go there. As a matter of fact, studies have even said that we in our world today have only studied about 10 to 15% of the ocean. Like there's still so much that we don't know that lives in utter darkness. 
So these strange creatures, if you will, from the underworld begin to show themselves. And Daniel witnesses them coming up out of the water. And they're terrifying because they're evil. They're terrifying because they get dominion, crush and devour flesh, control things. So are you guys filled with hope and encouragement yet? Yeah. Look at these beasts. The first one in verse 4 is, says it's, it's like a lion. Okay, it, it looks like a lion. It's got wings, though, and the wings are, are taken from it. And now it stands up on two feet like a man. So it's like this lion man with wings like, OK, like a griffin door. I don't know. The second one, verse five, is like this lopsided bear. OK, like it's really big. It's leaning on one side. I mean, I don't know. It, it looks, it's got ribs coming. Like the previous victim is still kind of in its mouth. And it's like go and destroy. Then there's a leopard, but it's also a bird. And yet it's not, it's a bird, leopard, bird thing. It's got four heads. And it kind of looking at it's got dominion, so that means you can't hide from it because forehead represents all around, you know, and it's it's looking everywhere. And there's these things. Oh, and by the way, here's a fourth one. And the fourth one confuses Daniel. Like the three others didn't. I don't know. The fourth one confu- he doesn't even have an animal to compare it to. Like the others, he's like, well, it's kind of like a leopard. It's kind of like a bear, kind of like a lion. What's that one? I don't know. It's terrifying. It has iron teeth. Later on in the chapter, we say it has bronze claws, and it's devouring, crushing. And then it gets even worse, you know, like, like a dream does, right? So I was dreaming. I was sitting in a chair. I was playing checkers. And every time I moved a checker, it opened this door over here. And I looked up, and I was playing checkers with a penguin. And the penguin was talking to me in this French accent. And he was riding a moose. And I looked around, and we were sitting on the deck of an ocean liner. And it was sailing on a sea of cheese. What? Like I said, stop eating pizza before bed. No, but look at the dream. It gets even worse. This beast comes up. And he's terrifying, and he's got dominion, and he's devoured. And then it says, he's got ten horns. And then there's another one, this little horn, that kind of pops three others off the head. And now the horn sprouts eyes and a mouth, and it starts to speak boastful things. What in the world does all of this mean? Now, here's what some of you want me to do some of you the end time junkie people want me to say okay this is what we got to do we've got to have our charts we've got to figure out who these monsters are and then we need to figure out what the ten horns are and then we need to figure out the little one that removes the three and then what is the point of the eyes or the wings or the heads on and on and on and you want me to go into all the little details well one of them is Nebuchadnezzar so that means the next one has to be Darius and then the leopard bird thing, that's probably Alexander the Great. And then that makes the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. And the ten horns are ten Caesars, and so on and so on and so on and so on. We get going so far down in a rabbit hole, trying to figure out each and every little detail. Why? Because it fascinates us. 
I would say it fascinates a large group of us. See, there's a reason that apocalyptic literature is popular. As a matter of fact, back in the early 2000s, there was a series of books that were written that every time one came out, it very quickly jumped to the top of the number one bestseller list on the New York Times. You know what they were, the Left Behind books. Why? Because it told us what was coming. Really? We have a Bible that tells us, yeah, but they wrote it in a way that we could understand. And I want to suggest to you that if you get so caught up in the details, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. You'll substitute all the details for the actual message of Daniel 7. And I think that what happens is, like we said with Daniel, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is that we miss the point. People have argued for centuries, which kingdom is this and which kingdom is that? I've even heard someone say that these kingdoms represent modern kingdoms, that the lion was England and the bear is Russia and the leopard is America and all of this stuff. And I'm like, okay. Oh, the man has four heads. I'm like, wait, we have three. We have president, Supreme Court, but Congress has two parts. <gasps> four heads. People have struggled. Which kingdom is this? Which kingdom is that? If Nebuchadnezzar is this one, and this one's Greece, this one's Hitler, you know, what in the what in the world? Because we want to know. Kingdoms represent empires, or you could use a modern-day term, superpower. See, that you, you understand, and you could do this on your own. Did you know that there's never been a time in history that the world has not, has been without superpowers? Egypt, China, or Spain, England, America, Russia. Superpowers have ruled through history. And have you ever noticed that superpowers are always represented by predatory animals? America's mascot is what? The bald eagle, right? What's Russia's mascot? Oh, no, it's a bear. We're in Daniel 7. Oh! <gasps> It's leaning on one side. That means Russia's mostly on this side. Siberia's a wasteland. What? China is a dragon. It's always predatory animals. You've never heard someone say the superpower with the hedgehog. <laughs> New Zealand's mascot is a kiwi, which is a little flightless bird. I guess New Zealand will never be a superpower. Listen. There are forces in this world, there are superpowers that have always existed. And they will always exist until the end of human history. I can't look at Daniel 7 and say, it's all been fulfilled, because, because then if it's all fulfilled, how is it relevant to me? I mean, there's got to be some continuation, because some things that haven't happened yet. No, it's saying, Christian, listen, listen. The reality of monsters is this is your life. You're going to live in a world that has malevolent evil. You're going to live in the world where these monsters are real, where these beasts or forces are going to come against you, and you should expect it. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians chapter 6. He goes, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. He goes, we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 
And they're not going to go away, exiles, until the new age is fully dawned upon us. So why does God do this? Why does God not just make it so it's all good for us? You ever think about it? Like, why can't every day be Friday? You ever notice Friday is like a little better day for all of us? It's like, it's Friday. I could get up in the morning and I go to school and I teach. And Monday morning, I'm like, <sighs> Monday. Here we go. Everyone hates Monday. Anyway, go to school Monday. And then you hit Wednesday and you're like, well, it's okay. We're making it, you know. And then we hit Thursday. And when you go to bed Thursday night, you're like, wait, tomorrow's Friday. Yes. Like, I, it's the last day of work. I get to, you know. Why can't every day be Friday? Why can't everything be rosy and perfect? Why doesn't God just give us good things? Did you know that so much of our spiritual life is based on expectations? And that if you expect your life to be perfect when it's not, you'll become depressed. I mean, think about it. If you go into a marriage and you think going into a marriage that all your needs are going to be met and it's going to be this perfect, beautiful thing, you're going to be really bummed out. Probably before the honeymoon is over. Well, the honeymoon will be over at some point. Like my wife and I literally said to each other, the honeymoon is over while we were still on our honeymoon. It was my fault. Anyways. Our spiritual life is based on our, our expectations just determine so much of our lives. So God says, hey, I'm not going to set you up for failure. I'm not going to set you up for, to fall. I'm going to set you up for reality. And the reality is this. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there are monsters. And they are evil. And sometimes they have faces. And sometimes they're impersonal forces. Sometimes there are systems and powers that are going to oppress you and they're going to hurt you and they're going to hold you down. Why? Because evil is that way. So that when trouble does come, you expect it. And that's why I love Bible. That's why I love Scripture. Because it doesn't lie to me. It doesn't paint me this false picture. It shows me the most realistic picture that I'm living in a world that's fallen. Again, feeling hopeful and encouraged yet? Probably not. But you know what? We just made it to verse 8. That's not even the end of the dream. The dream's not over. Look at verse 9. We don't end with this horrible, awful image of monsters. Now we see the second part of the dream. The second part, and by the way, where the focus should be. This is where hope comes from yes there's really bad news there's sin in the world but there's really good news and that is there's a god who is over all of it so the second part of the dream is the sovereignty of god and christ the sovereignty of god and christ look at verse 9 as i looked thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat the first thing you see is that title, Ancient of Days. This is a reference to God. It's capitalized. And it's only used here in Daniel. And it literally means aged of days. Timeless one. So God steps in. 
He comes into the midst of the chaos. He comes into the midst of all these beasts. And he steps into the midst of human history here. And what does he do? This is amazing to me. It says, he took his sword. That's not what it says. It says he took his seat. He sits down. And he sits. See, every mythology in the ancient world always has this, this struggle battle going on between the yin and the yang, between the good and the evil, the constant struggle in the Greek myth that which God is going to prevail. Hopefully it's good, you know, and we're hoping and da 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 I mean, even movies today show the struggle between forces of evil and forces of good. You know, is it the Jedi or is it the Sith or is it the Avengers? Is it Thanos? You know, what is going on? It's all this struggle, you know. Not with God. There's not even a battle here. He comes in and sits down. And he judges. Now notice what Daniel sees about this God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. He had clothing that was pure white, representing his purity and his righteousness. His hair is as white as wool, maybe perhaps more of the purity of his thoughts or his righteousness. Or I think also the white hair represents the wisdom of great age. He's timeless. He's wise. And then it says he's sitting on a throne. But notice it says the throne is fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Wheels? probably only be described as some sort of chariot throne. That the throne is on fire. The wheels are burning with fire and fire is coming out of it. And then it says in verse 10 that there's this huge host of people that they're surrounding him and they're serving him. And he sits there in judgment and proclaims. Another commentator, Ian DeGuid, says this. He says, here we see a judge who has the wisdom to sort out the right from wrong, the purity, he's white, to choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgment. God reveals himself to Daniel. You know, there's a few times in the Old Testament where it's described as God revealing himself to the people. I mean, you can think of several. But the one here in Daniel is pretty incomparable to the others. For example, like in Exodus, remember Moses, and he asked to see God, and God says, you can't look at me. If you look at me, you're going to die. And you remember what happened? He said, I I tell you what, Moses, I'll hide you in in the cleft of the rock here, and I'm going to put my hand, and as I pass by, you're going to be able to see what? That's the the thing that people have questioned. His back? God has a back and a foot. What is that? Some of it's the Shekinah glory. We don't even know what it was. And actually, I did a little study that what he saw behind, like the back, was sometimes just God's afterburn. That's a, like, what? Over in Isaiah, we see Isaiah in, in the throne room of God. I think it's chapter 6. His throne room, high and lifted up. It talked about his train filling the whole room. And there were these seraphims with wings that were covering his face and covering his feet. And they were all crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Daniel sees him. 
But notice Daniel saw his face. He saw the hair of his head. He was white. Why did God do for Daniel something that he didn't do for Moses and Isaiah? Because I wrote down, you know what people in exile need more than anything? A vision of God and his power. To know that God is in control of the situation. To know that he is totally in control. That there's not a battle that he's struggling with. When the world gets darker and darker and countries and and, and powers move farther and farther away from God, God is not sitting in heaven going, man, I hope I can redeem people. I hope I can win. There's no battle. He's not struggling. See, what... What gives you confidence, Christian, when you're most fearful? That there's a God seated on his throne who is governing all right now. And that gives us hope to lead, to continue on. I read about a guy this week named Don Shelton. He's a huge UNC basketball fan. He's an older gentleman, and he records every game. He actually never watches the games live. He just records them. He made the statement, if I watch them live, I get too stressed out and they cause my blood pressure to go too high. So I just record them. And the next day, if they win, I'll watch the game. Why? He said, because I know no matter how bad it's getting, no matter how far down my team gets, I know it's going to be okay because they won. The confidence. The confidence as a child when you're standing next to your dad. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm confident because I got this awesome superhero beside me, right? <laughs> and the dad's like, yeah, but where's my superhero? I'm the dad. I got to be your superhero? This is a scary thing. Yeah. This is what exiles need to hear. There's a father in heaven. And look at him in all of his glory. And he sits. And he judges. When you read verse 11, the horn is still speaking boastful words. It was so hard for me not to look at modern political people into this, but okay. The horn is speaking boastful things, and it says the beast is killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, and the rest of the beasts were taken away. The vision's still not done. Look at verse 13 and 14. Not only does it see the sovereignty of God, look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Daniel sees one like a son of man appearing in the clouds. The word son of man was a way in the Old Testament to refer to someone as a human. For example, we, the guys, are sons of men in here. My father was a man. We're the sons and daughters of man. C.S. Lewis picks up on that. In, in the Chronicles of Narnia, he actually calls them sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We're son of men and daughters of men. But what's interesting, when you get over to the Gospels, you see Jesus, and you know what words he used most often to describe himself? Son of man. You read the book of Luke. You see it all the time. That one of his favorite ways of referring to himself by name is the Son of Man. And and actually, it kind of touches my heart to think that Jesus loved calling himself human. To think that he loves coming and being with us and being part of us. 
And by the way, I believe he calls himself son of man because of this verse. There came one like a son of man. It doesn't just say the son of man, but notice it says he's coming with the clouds of heaven. It says he's like a son of man. He has human qualities, but he's coming in the clouds. That phrase is universally used in scripture to to describe something that is more, something that's divine or deity. And so what you have in verse 13 is Daniel 7 saying that this this man who is God, this God-man, comes before the Ancient of Days. And now look what happens in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. He's given dominion and it will last forever and ever. Which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. We serve a God who isn't in struggle, but he judges with a simple word. And his simple word destroys Satan. It destroys evil. This Thursday, 502 years, Reformation Day, right? The day Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the wall. You guys remember that in history, the birth of the Protestant Reformation, and that Martin Luther lived the rest of his life. He went before the Diet of Worms, and he, he, he struggled, and he was persecuted. And then he writes the, what many have called the anthem of the Protestant Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God. In the third verse, he wrote this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. Those beasts are terrifying. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. And then it says one little word shall fell him. See, the son of man isn't trying to figure out how he's going to vanquish the kingdom. The son of man already has the kingdom. He's been given the communion. Nothing compares to him. That's where our focus should be. By the way, that's the dream. Hey, we've made it to verse 14. Yay! The rest of it will go pretty quick. Verses 15 through 28, we have the interpretation. And because we went through the dream, we interpreted quite a bit of it as we went. But I just want to finish this morning with a couple of principal points here to help us living today. The interpretation in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. What's the truth of this? The interpretation, what I want you to write down for the first one is the finality and certainty of victory. The finality and certainty of of victory. Daniel's still confused. He's like, he approaches someone, perhaps in the dream, probably an angel of sorts, and he's like, hey, 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 what's going on? Like, what is all of this? And look at what the angel says in verse 17. I, I, I read through this a couple of times, and I jumped over it, but then I went back, and I was like, wait, what? Look at verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High God shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's all he says. Wait. The lion, the bear, the leopard. What, what, what are those? Oh, those are, those are kings that are going to come up out of the earth. Okay, but, but what are those? Those are kings that are going to come up out of the earth. That, that's all he tells him. That's it. That's all you need to know. He didn't tell him who the four kingdoms were. He didn't tell him who the ten horns were. He says, listen, those are just evil. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. He says, hey, I want you to know how important it is that the Son of Man come and he receives the kingdom and the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Wait, I thought you said the Son of Man gets it. Now the angel's saying that the saints get it? The sa- which one gets it? Uh, read Romans 8 before? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And notice verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Then if you are in Christ then his righteousness is placed on you. Your sins were placed on him, and his righteousness is placed on you, meaning that you get what he gets. And it says it right here in Daniel. The Son of Man gets the dominion and the kingdom, and then the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. What he inherits, we will inherit. So you can push on. You can live with hope. Why? Because the certainty of victory, the finality of victory, because it says it's forever, forever, and ever. No end. And then the second part. Focus on God's kingdom. Focus on God's kingdom. Daniel hears that. That's what he hears. And then notice what he says in verse 19. Okay, yeah, I get it, angel. But... That fourth beast is really, really bad. Look at what he says. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. It's different from all the rest. It was terrifying. Teeth of iron and claws of bronze. And it devoured and broke and it stamped to pieces. And then the ten horns. And and he's so confused. What is that? I can't compare it to an animal that I know. He's questioning. He doesn't know what to think about it. Maybe he could tell, well, that's a specific kingdom, or that's that kind. But that last one is so different to me. When you read the angel's response, we read it a few minutes ago. Verses 23 to 27. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. It shall be different from other kingdoms. It shall devour the earth, trample it down, break it to pieces. The ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He will be different from the others. He'll put down three of them. He shall speak words against. He will swear out the saints. When you read the angel's response, you know what I notice? There's not any clear answer other than still very generic. It's a king. It's a kingdom. I would love it if the angel could just tell Daniel the answers. Well, that is, <laughs> we're not going to give a name because I don't want people to leave here saying, well, Pastor Jay thinks it's this person. 
We'd love it if he just gave the answers, but he doesn't. He just recounts what we already knew. It's a kingdom. It's different. He doesn't say what kind it was. He just says it's different. He says there's ten horns, which represents ten kings. He doesn't name them by names. He says one's going to come up and begin boasting, saying he will be against God and the saints, but there's no specifics. It's almost as if the angel looks at Daniel and says, you're still focused on the wrong thing. That little horn is so insignificant. Just like the dream of chapter 2, Christians get so caught up with the details that they lose sight of that little rock that comes and destroys the statue. And we say, it's like the, the writer of Daniel saying, look at the rock. And for us, we get a picture of what that rock was. Verses 9 through verse 14. He says, this is what it is. It's the ancient of days. It's, it's a chariot of fire. And God is sitting on it. God is going to come and judge all the kingdoms and all the powers simply by speaking. Don't miss the point. Stop worrying about the beasts and what they are. But instead, focus on the throne of God. Focus on him. That's what gives me hope. But, but, but what about my newspaper that tells me the Middle East is in turmoil? You know what? It's always been in turmoil. Focus on God. But what about the decisions that our country is making that's moving us farther and farther from Christian roots? This country is not our home. Focus on God. And you know what it does? It makes you say, hey, yes, we're moving farther and farther away from God. That just means he's coming so much sooner. But what about the future? As a matter of fact, when you finish the chapter, verse 28, here's the end. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me. My color changed. By the way, it doesn't say which way his color changed. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Well, he's alarmed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Okay, but pastor, I just got to know when all of this is going to happen. I need to know when Jesus is returning. You know, the more I study this, the more I'm learning and the more I'm growing, the more I realize that many times that people who get so obsessed with these kind of fall into one of two categories. They're either people who are fearful, fearful that either they might miss it or it might not happen in their lifetime. And so they study intently to find that little bit of hope for them so that they indeed haven't missed it yet because the moon hasn't turned to blood or, or that Christ is going to return in their lifetime. Well, because Israel became a nation and that generation said it was never going to pass away or die. So that means it's kind of, I, I'm getting older and I'm getting older. I don't want to face death. I want to face Christ's return and he hasn't come back yet. So I'm so fearful. I'm going to write a book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming Back in 1988. And then the follow-up book the next year, 89 Reasons Why I Was Wrong. Anyways, they're fearful. Or they're in a second group, a group that would never admit it, but a group that lives their lives in such a way that says, I want to know that I have a little more time. I can continue to do the things that I want to do and live the way that I want to live. I want to, I want to know that Christ isn't coming back for a few years until I get married or whatever, so I can make material decisions or trivial decisions that ultimately don't matter for eternity. That's usually what happens. That's not everybody, but that is a big group. 
challenge of Daniel 7 and the future chapters of Daniel as we get to them is not to get out all these charts and graphs and try to disseminate every single word of the pictures of these beasts or horns and try to figure out which kingdom is which. Instead, it's to look up and live your life with the throne room in view. That I serve a God seated on the throne, high and lifted up. I serve a God who's not locked in battle. I serve a God who will judge every evil in the world by a simple command. And justice will reign. And everything will be put to right. Isn't that hopeful? That's the hope of the gospel. That's what God wants us to hear, that there's hope. So I close with this. Daniel 7 makes you and I ask ultimate questions. Questions like, am I ready to meet that judge? Am I ready to stand before the one who sits on a fiery throne who can judge with a simple word? Because, by the way, we're all going to stand there. And either you will stand there clothed in the filthy rags of your own righteousness and your own attempts to work your way to God, and you will stand there clothed in sin. Or you will stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not your own but one that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, do you know where your assurance lies? Where your confidence is? Is it in your own ability to overcome all these beasts and have to stand and fight them? No, it's that you're in Christ. So when the lion or the bear or the leopard or the fourth beast attacks you, you have Jesus Christ standing in front of you, protecting you. He is your hope. He is what you are seeking after. The only thing you can do is cleave to him. That's your assurance. Let's pray. God, this morning, Lord, we saw a clear picture of reality. That there's evil in this world. And as long as this world exists, there will be kingdoms, There will be superpowers who are not of you. Underlying will be the hearts of men and the depravity of men. Lord, there's only one kingdom that is true, and that is your kingdom. That is your glory. Lord, as we study these words, Lord, let us focus on the Ancient of Days. Let us focus on the Son of Man that judges by a simple word. Because ultimately, Lord, it is those, it is that one that will last forever, and that's the only one that matters. But I don't know what days lie ahead, but I know that you know, and I know that you hold tomorrow in your hand. Lord, let me, please let me keep my focus on you. What can man do to me? Lord, help me to be reminded that the present suffering of this world does not compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Let me live with hope today. God, I thank you for your promises of the word. I thank you for your pictures of Christ long before he even came to this earth. Lord, help my focus to remain on him. Let me live with the finality and certainty of victory 
doesn't matter how bad it gets. I know you still win. We love you. And we praise you today in Christ's name. Amen.